episodio número 18 de Otra por favor. Otra por favor. My name is Richie and here we have. Here's David. ¿Cómo está? ¿Cómo te va, Richie? Good, man. Still, you know, thinking about Messi leaving Barcelona and now he already picked the team. I know, man. It it, it hurts watching yes. him with a different uniform, you know, being happy. I mean, I know it's good for him, but it's always hurtful for for the fans, you know. Right. I'm a Barca fan, of course. I'm still going to follow my team, but but it just sucks that um, Messi's going to play against us now, you know? Right, right. However, uh, we will talk about soccer another day. Yeah. And today we're, we're going we're gonna to touch several good topics. And oh, yes. this one right here hits hard, uh, like for myself in every single aspect, because yeah. it's pretty much what I live, my current situation. Yeah. And for a lot of questions, there's always someone that can give us good answers. And here we have... Jessica. Hello. Jessica Smith, Bovadia. Hello, Jessica. How are you? Hi, I'm good today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited about this. Thank you for, Thank for you. being here. And uh, so before, before we know, give you guys, uh, she's going to introduce herself and give her her, uh, her background, a little more of her background. However, we I learned from Jessica, she's actually the attorney of the Olympian athlete who's a DACA recipient yes. and was able to get approval with advanced parole. His name is Luis Grijalva. Am I correct? Luis Miguel yes. Grijalva. Uh -huh. yes. mm -hmm. And, and this story right here is, is for me, it, 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 it touches, it touches my heart because I'm pretty much in the same situation. Although I'm not going to complain in the, compete in the Olympics, but it's just the fact that, um, like as a DACA recipient, you know, being able to see someone in my status go, to the Olympics now, it could have been a scenario where he could have represented the U, like the U.S., but that didn't work out. So he's, you know, he's he represented his home country, Guatemala. Yeah. And uh, Jessica, before we talk about that, can you share a little bit of your own background and you know where you're from originally and where your family's from, and Definitely. if you have any hobbies or any fun facts about you? Sure. So I was born in California in Fresno, which is central California. And um, my, my parents were both born in California. So it's interesting because I think a lot of people that were my generation, um, you know, in terms of being removed from the immigration experience, didn't always really identify as immigrants, whether they were Latino or other, you know, backgrounds. Um, But I think in my case, the immigrant experience was kind of multi-layered because, um, as I shared with uh, both of you, um, the uh, first migration uh, in my, my dad's family had kind of multi-level migration, if that's a term that might be used. But um, the, my dad's parents were both born in what's now considered Turkey, um, but used to be the eastern part of Turkey, used to be occupied by Armenians for thousands of years, as far as the historical record and the uh, geology and all that, the artifacts um, go. And um, so they, along with a lot of people that were of a similar background to them, were forced out at the end of the at end of World War One, the end of the Ottoman Empire when for various political reasons, the government of Turkey started to exterminate the Armenians, Assyrians, Greeks that lived within the Ottoman Empire and certain other Christian groups. Um, 
and as well as some other groups, gypsies. And, you know, there were some other groups, too, that were, I think, part of that targeting process. Um, you know, not just those groups, but it's collectively referred to most commonly as the Armenian Genocide, which was finally just recognized this year by the U.S. government, President Biden, finally, despite um, lots of um, things uh, like efforts by Turkey to dissuade the U.S. government from using the term genocide, finally, the U.S. government finally did that, you know, this year, 2021. So my grandfather um, had a little bit more of a direct path. He lost most of his family, so not many people made it to the United States. But he had um, a few people go somewhere near Turkey, like somewhere in Eastern Europe. I think it was I think everyone went to Bulgaria that didn't come to the United States. And we actually reunited with that part of the family. But Really, my grandmother's family um, ended up, um, through various circumstances, deciding to go to Mexico. They first got to Greece. It was just my great-grandmother and uh, and her kids, um, three young boys, and my grandmother, who was a teenager. My great-grandfather was killed um, publicly because he was a uh, clergy. You know, he was Christian clergy. So through various circumstances, they eventually decided to go to Mexico. And I think the first thought was that, well, my grandmother had told me that my great grandmother felt that she really wanted to get out of the entire region because she felt like things were going to get bad for the Armenians in the future. And they, they have, if we could probably do a whole nother history on um, the Ar- Arme- modern Armenia, which is slightly north of where my grandparents were born, but how they've encountered kind of similar problems with their, their neighbors. Um, but my family kind of through chance and kind of through, I think, my great grandmother's wishes to be somewhere where she at least would knew that she wouldn't be religiously persecuted, you know, given that Mexicans are by and large Catholics right. and they, you know, it's actually a very similar religion between the Armenian people and Catholics. It's an Orthodox form of Christianity. So they ended up getting on a boat from Greece eventually and going to Mexico. And I believe that they first landed somewhere near Veracruz. Um, okay. I actually have some records. Um, there's an historian who's in Mexico, who's of mixed heritage, um, kind of like similar to my family, who has um, traced the historical path of the Armenian uh, refugees and a number of other groups that migrated to Mexico and became part of the fabric in in many cases of Mexican society. And so um, they ended up there. And I think the original plan was to, to try to get to the United States But my oldest uncle um, ended up meeting, you know, it always happens, right? Someone falls in love and that throws the plants. (laughs) And, you know, and Mexico's a really, you know, it's a beautiful place. And I think that they kind of finally felt safe. But they, I really feel in the case of my family, too, that they felt like they were safe, but they were also home Mm -hmm. in a certain way that was familiar. And I think some members of my family never really felt that in the United States, you know, even when they had the option to come here, some decided to stay in Mexico, even though they probably could have migrated or immigrated. Um, but they, my oldest uncle, whose name was Kisag Avakian, he started, um, he met someone in Mexico City. They were both teenagers and she was from Guanajuato, my great aunt originally. And then um, they ended up um, falling in love. She followed my family because they kind of like had this tragic love story where they couldn't totally communicate from what I understand at first because he wasn't totally fluent in Spanish, but they had this really like great love and 
he, she ended up following my family and, you know, my great grandmother then kind of realized that she was serious and they became, you know, engaged and got married. And what's really remarkable to a lot of people is that my great aunt, um, she passed away, not that recently, but you know, not that long ago, she spoke Armenian, my aunt who was born in Guanajuato. Mm -hmm. And of course everyone spoke Spanish. So Mm -hmm. there's this really kind of crazy, you know, mixture of cultures that doesn't happen always because sometimes you find that one person totally blends to one person's culture. Mm -hmm. It's an intercultural marriage or relationship. And sometimes it goes the other way, but I find it really inspirational in a lot of ways because I do think they really both adopted a lot of each other's cultures in a way that um, is somewhat unique, you know, compared to other relationships that I've seen. So um, that was kind of, you know, just a part of the norm in my upbringing. Like I remember at one point being kind of surprised when I realized that all Armenians didn't speak Spanish. I mean, I knew there was an Armenian language that was distinct. (laughs) You know, but it was uh, it was really um, kind of a very mixed uh, experience. And then also the names. And to this day, I just have actually a cousin, um, one of my cousins, his son, who um, has and some of them still have Armenian first and last names and others have a Spanish sounding, you know, first name and Armenian last name or vice versa. Mm -hmm. But he just had two twin beautiful girls with his partner and they gave them both uh armenian first and middle names oh, wow. you know that's so cool. it's that's real cool. and the children are probably like an eighth me- i mean almost all mexican and then they're like an eighth armenian <laughs> but there's um you know some really interesting i think things that um have have happened in the family as a result and one of my cousins also got married in guanajuato recently she wanted to get married where her uh, her grandmother was from, you know, her grandmother was from near, she got married in San Miguel de Allende, mm-hmm. but um, her grandmother was from near there, not exactly there. And so I went and I actually um, got to say a, the same poem in Spanish and Armenian as part of the ceremony. Mm-hmm. And the food that she had prepared was kind of a mixture of um, something like Armenian food, like probably more just generally Middle Eastern, Mediterranean food Mm -hmm. and Mexican food. So it was, it's kind of cool, you know, just the whole history. But also I think just, especially my dad's family, it really kind of equipped me with the idea that people go to great lengths to change their circumstances and migration is part of that, Mm -hmm. right? And so some of the family members, like my grandmother married my grandfather, who was Armenian, and he was already in California. So they got married in Mexico and then she came. But Mexico was kind of the home base because there was no Armenia during part of this period or it was under communist rule, you know, so it wasn't really free and independent and they weren't allowed to practice their their culture. And a lot of things were repressed, I think, during that time to a large degree. So um, Mexico was kind of a second home to my dad. When he was growing up, they would go every summer. He and his mom would take the bus when my grandfather was working and visit the family. And eventually my great uncle ended up having some luck and some success. And he ended up buying a hotel that some Italian immigrants owned. It was called the Hotel Caesar. And a lot of people don't know this, but it's actually where the Caesar salad was invented. Um, the restaurant there. And it's a big source of pride in Tijuana because, Mm -hmm. you know, Tijuana gets a bad rap, right? It has a lot of interesting things, but a lot of Americans think it's all bars and, you know, just kind of underworld stuff. But um, there was actually a conference in Tijuana in 2019 that I got to attend with my family. Mm -hmm. 
And a lot of it was about the history of the hotel and the history of the salad. And there's actually a lot of urban legends about the salad. (laughs) (laughs) There's, there's theories that it was, so the family that owned it before my family, um, their last name is Cardini and we're still in touch. I'm still in touch and we're still in touch with certain members of their family too, who are still in Mexico and different parts of Mexico. But there's urban legend that there was like a cook who was from Tijuana mm-hmm. that actually invented it. Really? And that Cardini, the Cardini family got credit because they own the hotel. Oh. So I think it's I think it's a really interesting thing. But it, <laughs> it was really cool to go and, you know, attend this conference in Tijuana and to see that the salad and the hotel are kind of an important landmark and a source of pride for the community, mm-hmm. you know, because Tijuana often gets a bad rap. Right, right. And then you, you were saying your 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 parents, your parental grandparents were from Armenia and your maternal grandparents, where are they from? They're um my mom was my mom's passed away now, but she was mostly Sicilian, Italian. Um her mom was full, you know, my my great grandparents were from Sicily and they actually mm-hmm. moved to Fresno um, because they were interested in buying like a grape, you know, ranch as they retired. They, they, my mom was born in the Bay area near Oakland or in Oakland and grew up near there, but um, they were mostly Italian. And my uh, mom's father had some Irish to his, his last name was Irish. So they had, you know, a different experience in some ways, even though I think that in those days, Italians and Catholics also weren't necessarily considered like mainstream white America, you know, um, for various reasons. Remember, like when John F. Kennedy became president, it was a big scandal, him just being an Irish Catholic. Right. But, you know, I think um, my dad's family had a lot of different things come up because at the time my grandparents uh, settled in Fresno, um, there was actually a lot of Armenian immigrants, refugees, and there was a lot of uh, discrimination against, I mean, Armenians, among other groups, Latinos too, you know, African-Americans too, but right. there was actually um, also restrictive covenants that included, you know, African-Americans, Latinos, Asians, and specifically named people like Armenians, or they they named them as members of the Ottoman Empire mm-hmm. because technically they weren't Armenian citizens. They were, they had been Turkish citizens before they had been expelled from that area. So kind of a long winding history, um, but I really feel like my mom's family was proud of their, you know, Italian, mostly the Italian side kind of dominated because that's mostly what they were. But um, my dad's side, I think that that whole history really motivated me to go towards something like immigration or human rights, because obviously genocide and then the whole history of migrating some were so different. And then some people coming here, it was just kind of, I think, um, natural um progression for me to go towards something like that okay that's so from from uh the let's say from the armenian part of your your you know your father's side and then the Mm -hmm. italian irish from your mom what are the similarities and what are the differences you have experienced as you grew up with both backgrounds with those two um well, I mean, both my parents were loud and emotional, <laughs> you, know? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you know, and yeah, like loud, and emotional, <laughs> like expressive, you know, yeah. but like too much, say what you're thinking, like, you know, don't hold it in that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But um, I think my mom's family had had less of a struggle 
getting here, you know, honestly. And I think even though they might not, they hadn't necessarily had a lot of money, you know, especially my grandparents' generation. Um, I don't think that my mom's family experienced as much feeling like an outsider as my dad's family had, you know, which is common of people that are subject to things like restrictive covenants, right. And other forms of discrimination and racism, you know, and um, there's kind of a funny story that my dad uh, told me because my dad's getting older and one of his, his sister died, um, who was the oldest of the three. And my dad told me this recently. So they had, there had been kind of these restrictions on where they could live. And my dad was the youngest and around the time he was getting a little older. They started to, you know, loosen up a little bit. So there were Armenian families like his that stopped moving out of these exact borders mm-hmm. of the city of Fresno. And so they moved a little bit um, like to this area that was a little less just exclusively Armenian. And they had a, a neighbor who was an older, um, you know, American white lady, and she really didn't like them at first and wouldn't talk to them. And then um, over time, she kind of warmed up a little bit, like, and that type of thing. And then it was funny because one of the relatives from Mexico, so we had this one relative that was from Armenia, but settled in Mexico, Mm -hmm. but he lost his parents. My great grandmother had brought him with them. And I think he kind of freaked out after a while and just felt like he had to go establish himself. Mm -hmm. So he had broke away from the family in Mexico and they, he would come back every few years, but he had totally assumed like a Mexican name, like, you know, he didn't tell anyone he was Armenian. He just, you know, once he knew the language, he totally assimilated, you know? And so he showed up one day speaking Spanish. And I guess that then she like confronted him and it was just kind of crazy. Some of the things they went through, but I said to my dad, you know, this is like Fresno, California in what, like the fifties or something. It's not like New York city or Paris or somewhere (laughs) where you get all these different people coming through. She's probably like, what are you guys? You know, (laughs) I thought I'd be figured out. And now this guy shows up speaking Spanish and (laughs) I don't know, I don't know what you are. So it's, we kind of laugh about those things, but I mean, underlying that there's obviously some racism. Right, right. That they experienced and definitely not unique to to most immigrants um, that come from anywhere, but really Europe, you know. So what do you think, Chaparro? I mean, I think it's it's kind of cool, like how you have those, you know, different um, countries uh, as a as a part of your your family, you know, Irish, Italian and also getting the culture from Mexico after that right and and how has that uh shaped your your background in your life you know being yeah i think just having very different you know um family members and family members that identify very differently Mm -hmm. maybe has made me see a lot of different things but um i think that the kind of the idea behind everything that pushed my dad's family out of where they were from kind of made me realize that people leave their home for all kinds of circumstances. And it's really easy for people to say, and I don't think that has to be genocide. I think a lot of economic, you know, mm-hmm. um, suffering yeah. too is, is real and things that are short of genocide, even that are going on now in Central America and parts of Mexico are, you know, human rights violations, mm-hmm. right? Where there's mm-hmm. no one to protect these people. And so I think it's easy for people to like draw these lines when they don't really know firsthand, like what it's like for people just literally to like flee, you know, 
And, and I think that's happening still in the world. And so I think it's shaped definitely my views on immigration and migration and wanting to help people try to migrate Mm -hmm. if they need to, or think they need to. And, and it's, it's like, let's say for example, you're, you're in a, in a career now that you actually have some kind of power to defend people. Um, yeah. A lot of the times, like I've seen it in, in attorneys, and I want to say, I don't want to generalize, you know, the their career or, you know, attorneys. But however, you know, some of it, it could be used for just litigation. Some of it can be used for criminal, for, you know, making that money. Mm-hmm. Immigration part has a little more, with more human humanistic part. Like anything that has to do with the social, yeah. so yeah. The, the society, it, little, it brings a little more hum, humanistic point of view in regard, like for your career. And now uh, I've, you know, switching from, say, talking to your background and how you're talking about how that shaped up for you to become an attorney. When did you first decide, you know what, this is my time to become an attorney? An immigration attorney, like in immigration attorney specifically. Right. Well, I think like fifth grade, um, we had to do some kind of project about what we thought we'd like to do. And I said attorney, but I didn't really know fully what that meant, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, And so then I guess, you know, probably like in law school, I really took a lot of human rights, international law. Interesting. I didn't take immigration law itself in in law school. I took a lot of human rights and international law because I I mean, I'm, you know, I went to law school a long time ago, but I thought at the time that I'd probably work in something like more human rights based and, um, and in fact, um, I met my now ex-husband. My ex-husband is Dominican. So I met him. I was actually doing work with one of the UN agencies in Haiti. And I met him around that time. And we, you know, I thought that I may even go just do that kind of work. Um, but he wasn't too thrilled about going to places like Congo and, you know, Haiti. I mean, I think if you're born in a country that is not like the United States or Europe, you think twice about going into a country where it's a step down in terms of development, right? It's like DR, like Mexico is kind of like mid-level, right? Right. So you're, you know, I remember the look on his face, like why, you know, like (laughs) what you're going to go, like what we're going where. And so, so we, I ended up, you know, doing that contract, but not really pursuing that that much further at that point. Um, But I, you know, kind of one of my human rights professors at Hastings, which is where I went to law school, it's in San Francisco. And I think she's still there. Her name's Naomi Arriaza. And she actually did a lot of work in Guatemala and Central America, okay. from what I recall. She also did a lot of writing on um, Pinochet, you know, the Chilean dictator right. who yeah. they tried in, you know, uh-huh. in Spain. And, you know, there's all this international law stuff. And I'd helped her a little bit with some research on that. But she had told me when we would talk, she's just like, remember that human rights are also like close to home. And she knew I was from Fresno and she knew the whole history. Mm-hmm. And I think what she was trying to say is you don't have to go a world away to make an impact really in a human rights way. It might not be international per se, but it kind of is like, look at the case that we're, you know, we we're going to talk a little bit about Luisa's case mm-hmm. that had an international impact. And there's a lot of different layers to it. Right. Where, um, you know, I definitely think we were pursuing his right to travel, but also kind of his human rights mm-hmm. to pursue his career and all of that and to migrate for work, even temporarily to pursue things that other people might just have as take for granted. So um, yeah, so I think that 
it kind of all just started to take shape. And the first law firm I worked for actually that did immigration law was on Wall Street. And it was a lot of business immigration. I was still living in New York. And then Mike's husband, you know, he came from DR and we were living together in New York. And um, then, you know, I but I had really no Spanish speaking clients there Um, once. It was kind of odd. Some man ended up in my office because most of my coworkers were Chinese and a lot of the clients were Chinese. Mm -hmm. And they put this man in my office because they knew he was speaking Spanish. And the weirdest thing is he was an Armenian from Uruguay. And so then he switched to (laughs) Armenian and he was very upset that my Armenian is not as good as my Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, when he realized I was Armenian, when I saw his name, I'm like, Juan Davidian. I'm like, I don't know. We could be really <laughs> this looks suspicious. And he was so happy. And then he'd stop by like every day and we couldn't, you know, I think I helped him figure something out about his case. It wasn't as big as he thought, but he didn't really speak any English. But um, yeah, so I mean, but it was great also working in New York because I think that energy and like the fast pace, I started going to court and to the asylum offices in New York and New Jersey and just nowhere is as fast paced as New York. And if you can like it, especially, you know, not that I was, I worked on some business immigration cases, but not that I was just like in the whole wall street thing, as you think of it, but we were like literally down the street from the stock exchange. Mm -hmm. So I think that set a certain pace that was fast, you know, and I think that helped me later in my career because I think I was able to deal with a lot of stuff, you know, whereas maybe, you know, places like the Bay area, somewhat fast paced, but not always. And then, you know, Fresno, I think that the legal community is a little bit slower paced. It's a more agricultural area, you know, um, not, not as many, um, firms and things like that as some places, even though I think there are a lot of good lawyers there and in smaller, you know, areas. So, um, I think that that was cool. And I really liked the asylum cases I had in New York. Some of the Chinese cases were okay, but there's kind of a pattern of migration with the Chinese where Mm -hmm. they're told what to say by a smuggler. It's completely different than like Mexico and like the Coyote. It's not like, Mm -hmm. okay, we're done. You're in the country. It's like, it's called a snakehead. Mm -hmm. And they actually smuggle the person over from China and then make them work off a debt sometimes in a restaurant and sometimes in a massage parlor, if it's a woman. Right. Right. And then they extract all kinds of fees. And usually they, they try to contact a lawyer and, and get an asylum claim going. So it's, it's, and and imagine that, that like backdrop, but not being able to talk to the person in their native language either. So someone's interpreting and you're like, are you the smuggler? <laughs> yeah. Are you lying to me? Or, yeah. 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 That can be pretty know. hard. Yeah. Or, or a lot of it, it could be like, like you know, kind of like uh, the person, the smuggler is actually getting ideas from you from an interview that you're doing with him. Yeah. So, okay. Got to coach people. Right, and, yeah. right. And they're answering more of the questions you realize, because even though I can't understand, I can tell if someone's saying something or if they're just, you know, if the person says one word and then the translator says 10 sentences, then clearly they're not translating. Right. (laughs) Yeah. It's so crazy because. uh, Sorry, mm -hmm. go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, just that was like real formative, I think, in me realizing that I liked I liked we had a lot of African clients too. one of our paralegals was actually from Senegal, but he had actually lived in Cuba for a period of time, too. So he spoke both French and Spanish. Okay. You know, he was French from a French speaking African country. And he had he had contact with a lot of like um, people from Africa, West Africans. And so we had some really good claims, you know, 
obviously because Africa, just the, the politics and, you know, the everything is so intense that we had some really good, good cases. And I realized that I really liked the asylum stuff, but I wanted to connect with people that I could communicate with more yeah. too. It's probably easier, right, in a way to 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 do your job, I guess. Um, what I was going to say is, like, it's really, it's, it's crazy because when you think about immigration, especially here in the U.S., right, you mostly think about, you know, the, the, the part of the world here on this side, right? You really don't yeah. think about, you know, the other side. And now that you're, you know, telling us about this, it is crazy. It, there's a lot of immigration going on as well, you know, from other parts of the world. And yeah. um, you you get to see that a lot. Yeah. And I think that it's um it's also like, I don't know, I think that sometimes it gets um oversimplified um where people, you know, act like I, I get annoyed, particularly when people act like only Latinos or only, you know, Mexicans yes. specifically yes. are making these choices right. that you know, to, to cross into another country. And really it's going on all over the world and it stems from desperation or human rights violations or corrupt governments or lack of development, you know? And so it's not unique to the U S but I think especially in places like, you know, Fresno, where I grew up, it gets very oversimplified, you know, or at least it did when I was growing up as being like, this only occurs between the U S and Mexico, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and then condemning people for making those choices, you know, which we know are, I think in anyone's life, the choice to migrate is complicated and brave. Right. I don't know how you can choose to pick up everything. I can barely move apartments. I just moved apartments <laughs> and I feel so like my life, you know, I don't know where my hair dryer is, like anything. <laughs> and so I can't imagine like, you know, with the lack of resources and often with fear of different types um, you know, to pick up everything, especially often with kids and just to go, you know, because you feel like the, the staying is worse because it's easier to stay. Right. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what, uh, what has been the most challenging part of your career as an attorney, more so as an immigration attorney? Um, I think sometimes just staying, uh, well, I've been doing it almost 20 years. So I started, I guess, in New York in 2000, I got admitted in 2003. So I think I'm 19 years in this year. So next year will be 20 years. Um, I think staying kind of inspired, but every time I say that, then I'll meet a client or I'll reconnect with a client, um, who kind of inspires me again. And, um, you know, I have clients from all over the world, but I have to say that a lot of the clients I've really connected with have been from Mexico or Central America, you know, particularly Mexico. And maybe that's also the part of me that my history that is Mexican and also wants to know more about that. And what's interesting about our firm at this point, too, is we're all Mexican or Armenian. <laughs> my office manager is from Armenia, but he grew up in L.A., um, And uh, he was born in Armenia, but grew up mostly in L.A., so also grew up, you know, around a lot of Latinos and lives in Fresno now. And then uh, my cousin, who grew up in Tijuana, is actually in New York now, but she works for me remotely. So it's kind of interesting because it's kind of like a reflection of my exact history, even though we've had a lot of different people in there. But I kind of think it's interesting that I get this kind of epic case when I'm surrounded by people that are kind of family like literally and then my manager even though he's not literally family 
Well, I'm close with his family. He's close with mine. And so I think it's it's kind of interesting, you know, because there's sometimes theories that when you have the right energy around you, you can achieve the biggest things, right? Right, right. And so, uh, like for from for because I worked in the immigration you know office for for a while, like for a year, I got to learn you know pretty much every case has to be either approved or denied, or sometimes request for evidence. The whenever you get an approved case, that's that's a a win, you know, and that's that's a W. When we get a you know a request of evidence, you have to work a little more, get a little more evidence from you know from from the client. But how do you feel whenever a case hasn't been approved? Like especially for a case that is, it could be it could seem easy, but then it just turned it didn't turn out it turned out to be denied. Or a case that was just like from the beginning, it was hard to work with. And how do you how do you how did you deal with that part of the negative part of when something doesn't get approved? Yeah, well, I mean, in many cases, we've been able, I've been lucky in that I have been able to establish some decent communication with ICE, you know, and I have recently had to approach them about someone who had been, you know, removed long before he came to me, but is the father of a family with some kind of special needs. You know, one of the children actually has special needs or they're they're evaluating it, and we got some evidence of that. And I think I've been able to, in some cases, kind of negotiate, you know, with them. Um, I think it it really depends who the attorney is. Sometimes, and especially in Fresno, I have, um, you know, not anything like a direct line of communication any more than anyone else. But I think I've always been honest with them about situations. And, you know, I think there are some decent people in the system. You know, maybe I'm lucky to have been where I'm from, you know. But I have got the ear of certain people that would really listen and do seem sympathetic to giving someone, you know, as much time as they can to see if there's something else. Um, but it's always disappointing when you get a denial. Um, try to do everything I can to be sure as many things are approved um, without a denial. In some cases, we've also been able to refile things. But my strategy usually is to keep the person in the country as long as possible by, you know, I don't want to file anything like frivolous or, you know, never make anything up. But sometimes there's something new that happens or there's some new factor where you can get more time. Really, um, the most heartbreaking thing is sometimes when you hear people say that they just signed, you know, if they were detained by ICE, um, whether it's California or Texas, because the ICE officials told them that it was the same if they go. And I try to tell everyone it's, if you're in the country, you have certain rights that you just don't have the second you're, you're voluntarily returned or whatever, whatever they do, even if they don't deport you. I think that's one thing that's really important is that people know that while they may be giving you a version of the truth and definitely not all ICE agents are horrible people, their job is to remove people. Right. Uh So they're not, they're not there to assess your situation from your family's benefit or from your benefit as an individual. They're there to explain the basics to you that they have to. Right. Uh And that is a version of the truth that usually doesn't take the person's individual circumstances into account uh-huh. and is geared towards them getting a signature to put for Mexicans to put people on the bus, right. Or occasionally a plane, you know, but usually it's a bus. Uh-huh. And I know that that 
there is, you know, I mean, obviously that's part of what they do. So there is some form of credit if someone that works for ICE never deports anyone or gets anyone to sign. I mean, I doubt they're going to be there long, right? Yeah. So I think getting people to know, because sometimes they'll say, well, you know, the the immigration official or a lot of my clients say el inmigrante, you know, but they mean the immigration exactly. official, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They'll say, he told me this. And I'd say, well, yeah, but he's not your lawyer, you know? And, mm-hmm. you know, I wish you guys had called me before because we may have been able to have your father say something that would have stopped it. And he may have been eligible for a bond and to go through a court process and even a work permit in some cases. It's it's really hard. Like if you yeah. don't if you don't know anything about that, you obviously gonna do whatever they tell you there. Especially because you're gonna be scared. You're in a situation that you have nothing uh, that is gonna help you. Basically, so yeah. you just gotta follow whatever they tell you, and it's 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 hard. And I I tell my clients too, like if they yell at you, you just keep saying. And in fact, I think some of the ICE agents in, in California have made jokes in Central California have made jokes when people say that they're my client when they've come They say, oh, yeah, we know her because I tell everyone you just keep <laughs> saying I want to see a judge and that I'm your lawyer, you know, and no matter what they say, whether they yell, whether they act really nice, whether they act like they're giving you advice, you just have to keep saying she's my lawyer and I want to, you know, I want to see a judge because we can always reverse that later. If it's like, oh, now we've looked at the case and there's really not this great situation. You can always go. Right. But you're not going to get that benefit of a of a hearing if once once they have that signature. And I have got the signature reversed once, but it was a young, (laughs) yeah, I got him off the bus, but it was was someone that (laughs) was already on the way to Mexico. No, 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 get out, get out, get out, get out. Well, they shouldn't have, I don't know if they knew all this, but he was a young guy. He was over 18. I think he was 19, but he had been in a severe farm accident where he had actually lost a limb and he was on a number of medications. So I said he couldn't consent, you know, he didn't understand because we had evidence that he was having some uh, blackouts and, you know, nausea and Uh stuff like that. So they, you know, again, you know, I, I do give some credit to that. At least some of the people I've interacted with, you know, had some decency and some um, desire to follow the law, you know, but I know that's also, I've also, when I was on the East coast and other places, I didn't find that as much. And so, you know, I don't know if it's just that I've developed more ties in California now. Um, and, you know, people know, you know, that I'm not lying to them and they're not going to get fired because they give a extra time to someone who's actually a, mm-hmm. a sex offender or something, you know, bad. But, um, you know, but it, it seems like it's also different in different parts of the country. And I don't know if that should be the case, right? I mean, that enforcement should be so different. A lot of my clients from Mexico or other places, India, are harassed a lot in the South that are truck drivers. Even some that are permanent residents have been harassed by ICE in the South. Um, So I don't know if the enforcement thing should be so different. That's that's the one thing that I, um, whenever... Biden first stepped in office, you know, there was a couple of actions he took in executive part where he pretty much was telling ICE what is their job to be doing instead of removing people over and over and over. Like I completely forget that term. And that's, and for me, it's like, it's actually, it, it is, they, 
it has to be more for me ice should be more like a, a filtering system yeah you get the people that really don't need to be in this country get them out you know because yeah. we can't have someone that has committed felonies or drug trafficking or you know has murdered somebody after they, yeah. they go to jail or like they pay their you know their time they have to be out but then they should be smart enough to get to know the people's case and be like okay from yeah. that what are you actually going to do in this country to to contribute are you paying taxes uh, you know if you have family are your kids going to school or even like you you're young you're 19 18 just like that guy is he in school or if he's not in school like how how good is he doing as a as a you know like a citizen of the i mean in quotations a citizen of the you know the country and i feel like that the job description for for a nice agent should change to be more of a filter rather than just a, a police that's ready yeah. to take people out. Uh, yeah. And I think that it's just also, you know, so complicated because when you think about that, you know, I guess I grew up somewhere that clearly was fueled. The economy is and was fueled by undocumented labor, right? The agricultural industry yeah. is, is fueled by undocumented labor, no matter what anyone says. And When I taught immigration law at the law school in, um, it's in Clovis, which is kind of a suburb of Fresno, um, I noticed that a lot of my students, some were people with immigrant backgrounds or their parents were of various, you know, a lot of Latino, some Asian and some other, you know, um, groups, Indian. But um, I also noticed that there were a lot of Caucasian American students that didn't have any, you know, that from what they said, direct tie. And I found out that they were all, their families were all in farming, you know, which some of my family that actually were immigrant had been in farming, but they were interested to know more about this because there's, there's actually crisis with not enough people coming to work that, and also just this whole thing that happens in any industry, you end up with some great people and you don't just end up with great people that have green cards or citizenship. You know, the farmers will be the first to say, I really need this person. You know, he's supervising all these people and he's excellent. And they get, you know, it's interesting because the people that don't have any connection to immigration will come into my office and they'll get mad at the system and mad at me. They're like, what do you mean? Like, I have this this farm that contributes all this income. I employ U.S. citizens and all these people. What do you mean? I can't just file something for him. He's been with me for 10 years, you know. And I think that's another failure of the system. It's obviously a failure to immigrants, but to industry and business and agriculture, too, because that should be possible that if someone has a great employee, you know, and they have a thriving business, they should be able to file for them and get them a green card. I don't know why not. <laughs> right. Especially when we have someone with an actual business. Yeah, there's a lot of that, you You know, particularly in the Central Valley, you know, there's a lot of the families live close to and their kids grow up together. Like, you know, sometimes the employees actually live on the farm and so does other family. And a lot of times their kids grow up together and they'll get mad at me when I'll say, no, there's really no path. You know, yeah, I know he has no I know he has no criminal history. I know you guys have known each other for 10 years and grown up to your kids have grown up together, but there's just no path. And I think that's shocking to a lot of U.S. citizens. They think that um, U.S. citizens that don't have immigrant, you know, roots or ties or know a lot of people because they think that it's we're just rounding up the murderers and rapists and not giving them green cards. Right. Yeah. Which I'm still looking for the murderers and rapists, right. you know. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, that's so. So far, I've only seen one, and I called him out. And he, yeah, he's it was the person delivering the message, right? right yeah. Right. What, uh, yeah. What do you think, Chaparro? It is. It is. Um, it is a lot when it comes to 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 the topic, right? But um, yeah, I like I like the idea of uh, being able to ask for somebody, especially if you have a business, right? Um, and you want to ask for somebody or give them, you know, documents. And if the system will change, I think that will be a good, a good way of 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 uh, rewarding good working people, yeah. right? Yeah. And it's just kind of silly that we, you know, that people can't do that, right? Also, that have built up a business here. Um, and it's also, I think, another thing that might be possible. Something I talked about with a guest on my podcast recently. Um, she's more a business immigration attorney, and she wrote a book called The Startup Visa. You know, um, her roots are in um, South Asia, but she also lived in London, and she has like a really developed uh, background. But I think that they could also do something like that for immigrant small businesses for the undocumented. Why not encourage them to start a small business, employ, yep. you know, a U.S. citizen or a permanent resident? And then apply for a green card with a waiver for their illegal time, you know, if they have no other issues. I mean, that makes a lot of sense to stimulate our economy, too. And I know just in the Central Valley in Fresno, Bakersfield, there's a lot of immigrant owned businesses, you know, and a lot even undocumented people trying to find creative ways to open their restaurant or to, you know, open other types of businesses that benefit a lot of people. And compared to the previous administration, to this administration, how has things changed? Have it, has it been for the better? Have you seen any changes at all? Or do you still feel like there's a lot of work that, we, that needs to be done? I think the problem is there was so much to undo from the last one. And anyone who says it's the same, it's not. I just had a conversation today with a government attorney in D.C., um, a woman that is from Mexico and her two sons ended up here. And now she's married to someone that's in the process of becoming a U.S. citizen. Um, but I had to file like a, a federal court appeal for her to kind of stop everything because ICE was, you know, still call, calling her because she was at the end of her appeal process before she came to me um, uh, in terms of the immigration system. And I talked to the government attorney and they agreed that they're not going to push for her to not have a stay, which stops the deportation as we figure this out. They want more information during the Trump administration. They wouldn't even get back to us. They wouldn't even call us back, much less look into things that were complicated, that would require more work on their part. And, you know, this woman obviously has no criminal history or anything, but yeah, I got a response pretty quickly saying they would not push for her to be deported. And during the Trump administration, they were opposing all the stays of removal and, you know, That's pretty amazing. much across the board. I do have a personal question. Um, yeah. Do they have, do they already have the bans for re-entry? <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you mean? The well, illegal re-entry? Or? Right, right. Um, so illegal reentry after removal, um, still, so the only way you can usually get around that is through, if you qualify for a U visa or DACA, you know, there's, mm -hmm. there's waivers for that, or there's exceptions for that within that. And U visa, again, if not everyone knows is a crime victim visa for certain victims and witnesses of certain violent crimes, um, but um, no, they haven't done anything with that. But the whole reinstatement thing is kind of ridiculous because 
a lot of people got expedited removal orders, mostly Mexicans, right? Um, I've, I'm trying to think if I've ever seen someone with expedited removal who isn't Mexican. Mm -hmm. So expedited removal started in 1996, right? And was a form of administrative deportation, which you don't have a right to a hearing. Mm -hmm. They remove you at a border. And I actually worked when I was in law school on a study um, that was, there's another great professor at Hastings. There's a center for gender and refugee studies, but she had first started, uh, her name's Karen Masalo, and she first started a study on expedited removal when I was in law school because it was a few years in. And the statistics that that we had as part of that study said that almost everyone that was expedited was Mexican or African. So that's at least in the first few years, there were just huge numbers and that they were supposed to just expedite people, you know, with false documents or that made a false statement. But that wasn't always the case. I have lots of Mexican clients that were expedited that swear up and down that there was nothing false. And I look at their uh, Freedom of Information Act request and there's nothing that I could see that was false. And because they do a write up, you know, so um, that was something scary during the Trump administration too. in in the law. The So in 96, the immigration law changed. Congress changed the law, but they can only do the expedited removal at a border or close, very close to a border. But the Trump administration, I don't know if you all remember, early on in like 2016, had issued a memo saying they were going to do that in the interior of the country. So let's say they encounter someone undocumented in Maine. They could do not anywhere near a border, not near the Canadian border or the Mexican border. Obviously, Um, they could do an expedited removal if they decide to. And they never actually followed through with that. But that was how I mean, well, I want to say that's how evil it got. But then we had the whole child detention thing where you're losing babies and their parents, you know. And um, so I think that was the height of evil. I don't know what you guys think, but there's so much there. During so that much that. I, mean, straight, yeah. I think it was just like holding on, you know, the whole time. And I, it was really hard to get more time, but I just wanted to get more time on cases. Um, and I was able to get some because the other thing is, is that they wrote out uh, the attorney general bar and then sessions, I mean, se- sessions and then bar they wrote out whole parts of the asylum law. Mm-hmm. So a lot of like the, I had one, you know, Mexican cases that were asylum or withholding or Central American, but it's not like the Holocaust where like people build structures and mark people. Mm-hmm. So they wrote things out that would make it possible for like a victim of cartel violence, unless they had proof that the cartel was after them. Right. Because they were political or because and I, I still I won a few cases like that. We were able to prove some things in a few cases that were kind of mm-hmm. political, local. But um, but, you know, who has that level of proof? I, I mean, and the way the operate is so right. secret. Right. And they yeah. terrorize people randomly, yeah. partly to terrorize everyone. Mm-hmm. Right. Because it's psychological control. So it's not like they knock on someone's door and hand them a piece of paper <laughs> yeah. and say, you know, Mr. Rodriguez, we're t- targeting you because of this. And that was kind of what it became. Um, you couldn't anymore qualify just from having a family member that was even murdered or tortured. You had to prove that they were basically looking for you for a certain set of reasons that was so narrow. It just became insane. We had nothing to argue, you know, in some of those. Yeah, they were, uh, they were saying, uh, they were, uh, well, I, I do follow several like attorneys uh, online. Mm-hmm. 
And a lot of them pretty much towards like when the election started, they were like, you know what? Hold off on filing things. USCIS yeah. is scrambling just to be able to on. Yeah. Like, I kept saying to everyone, let's hold just on. not you know, yeah. get removed during this time if we can help it or let's. And then for people that were on appeal and stuff, I'm like, let's just keep filing, you know, what we need to if there's still future things because they weren't considering any more requests like there's also something where the government can join a motion to reopen if your case was denied they weren't talking to us about that they wouldn't join any you know for all four years once he got his policies in place so i think it's you know i mean the democratic party has a lot of work to do i think in a lot of areas including immigration and to you know show the immigrant community that they are dedicated to getting something through but I think we know it can get a lot worse. <laughs> right, right. That's true. I mean, it, it's a it's a thing of strategy now. But then again, it takes some of that takes time. But it's kind of like, hey, you know, time goes by quick once you get to the midterm part. Yeah. <laughs> I think after that, you're thinking your mind is not. It's like for for me, is you have to get whatever you need to get done the first two years. So in, in the midterms, you can they can see the progress you made. Yeah, and and um, like that's so important right. for immigration is to get the Senate more aligned with more. Um, I want to say pro-immigrant people, but I don't think that reform should be something that you have to be so leftist mm-hmm. or pro-immigrant. You know, Same. I mean, I think just common sense. You're not going to keep growing. I mean, you know, have 13 million people undocumented, have people on DACA for now we're going on 10 years, right? I mean, are we going to let everyone that was a DACA student become like a senior citizen and just still be renewing DACA? I mean, that's what it seems like, because I don't think Obama did not intend for it to be a 10-year program. Right. That's good that you said that, because what do you what do you think about what needs to be done for, for DACA to actually, for that issue to get fixed? Hi. And thank you for listening to the episode number 18 of Otra Por Favor. Otra Por Favor. Uh, Jessica shared a little bit about her background. And next week, we are going to talk a little more about her career and also working with the case of Luis Grijalva, the Olympian who's a DACA recipient that represented Guatemala. Yes. Uh, just, so you, just be uh, ready for the next episode or the following part of, of the episode. Uh, we're we're going to get more into detail uh, about Jessica's uh, background and the information about Luis. Thank you and have a good evening. Thank you. Adios. Adios.